And in Romans chapter 15, we are going to be looking where we left off in verse 13. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. The Bible says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the conclusion, if you will, of all that he has been writing now since, frankly, since chapter 1, but specifically from chapter 12, verse now chapter 15, verse 13. That subject, that context is all about what practically, how practically we live based on the theology that was preached from chapters 1 all the way through chapter 11. And there was much there. Matter of fact, that this book, the book of Romans, is considered the magnus opus of Paul's preaching and teaching and theology. It is dripping with theology. Chapters 1 all the way through chapter 11 is just full of theology. And then chapter 12, it's very immediately says, based on what you know now of God, the mercies of God, the truths of God, who He is, what He has done, based on all of that, this is now how you are to live. Humbly. It's about others, Christ and the Word. It's interesting, how many of you as a little child were raised in a Christian home? Most of you? Many of you have been raised in a Christian home and you've probably heard this. I know I even taught this and, and, and loved it as a, a youth pastor and a children's church pastor. How many understand those things? Doing with little kids. They talk about joy, and what, what is the acronym for joy? Right, Jesus, others, and you. Here's the problem theologically with that mantra. Although I've used it and I understand what it's trying to say, what is the problem with that? Romans chapters 12 through 15 have nothing to do with you. Our focus is simply to be on others. And I'm not saying that's wrong and wicked and heretical, but I'm, what I'm saying is, well, here's what I'm saying practically. This last week I was with a, the, the former president of Master's Seminary as of a year and a half ago and was under his teaching for the last week. And I love him dearly. He is a passionate man that loves the Lord. At the end of the, at the end of the, he's preaching, pre, preaching doctoral students. That's what he was doing, telling telling the doctoral students how to preach, showing him aspects. And then in the end, he got real. How many love it when teachers get real? And and I, I truly love him for this, and I'm so thankful. He said, "Men." I'm going to be honest with you. Even though I have a set of golf clubs in my closet, I don't use them. 
I am so focused on the text of the Word, I don't have time for hobbies. I don't think that is just necessarily a pastor thing. But let me ask you, how much time do we spend in those distractions? Now, can you worship the Lord and glorify Him? Not worship, that's not the right word. Can you serve the Lord and glorify Him in a golf game? I have no idea because I don't play it. <laughs> but can you? I'm guessing there's a way of doing that. But that's where the you comes in, usually. In the mindset of Jesus, others, and you. I understand there's a time for rest. Christ demands a time for rest. Amen. But what does that look like? Well, I would argue that what God did was He stepped back and took a day of reflection on the great glories that, God has, that He had wrought in the world. He did that and said that very clearly in Genesis 1. But man, I thought, wow. He actually got up and said that. Good for you. How many understand the principle? By the way, that guy, he never stops reading. I mean, it's on a plane, everywhere he goes, it, he's reading and studying. And he has done wonderful things for the Lord because his life is saturated in the Word. Praise the Lord for that. And you can tell because his illustrations in preaching are very seldom his distractions because he doesn't have very many. I'm going to get that. So, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, believing that you will abound in hope with the power of the Holy Spirit. That catchword between, the catchword between verses 12 and 13 is this word hope. What hope do we have? Well, we just read it. Christ will hold us fast for the what? The hope. The hope of what? His return. The hope of His being with Him forever in eternity. Paradise. We've sung many songs about that. In context of this text, though, I think the hope, although that is the great hope of every Christian, and how many would say the great hope of every one of you is to be with the Lord, see Him face to face, and glorify Him and serve Him for eternity in paradise. Amen? That's exactly what we're going to do. Too many times we think our distractions are what heaven is all about. Our, our, our hobbies. And there's literally preachers that preach that. I will tell you this, they're wrong. We are going to serve God in heaven. In this context, though, that hope also in included this. That hope included unity within the church because it was absolutely disunified. And the emperor throwing the Jews out was a fruit of that or a result of that disunity. God with utmost abandonment, begs, pleads that their entire hope is in Jesus Christ. One cannot write hope a thousand times and realize it. 
How many remember doing that in school? I will not cheat. I will not cheat. I will. Any of you been disciplined that way? As if you're not going to cheat again. <laughs> There's no willpower that's going to get you over that hump. There is no such thing as one can cross his fingers and hope. You know, what in the world does crossing your fingers do? I would like to know the, the, the history of crossing your fingers. I would bet there's cultish ramifications in that. That's not the hope that's talked about. Reality is, when Christ is the center of our lives, hope is realized from God. By the Word, through the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what he's saying. Now may the God of hope. So God is the essence. He is the source. He is our hope. Amen. May he fill you with all joy. That hope, by the way, will fill you with joy and peace. How? In believing in him. There's no crossing your fingers. There's no trying really, really hard. There's no saying it a hundred times. Why? So that you will abound in hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. One day, the orchestration of both Jews and Gentiles will exalt the Son of God with total abandon together for the glory of the Father. That will be called the Millennial Kingdom. And I'm pumped, excited, and can't wait for that. But I'm not going to sit on my laurels and not please Him while I'm waiting. But I too, with utter abandon, will do what I can to serve Him, glorify Him, preach truth. When true hope is realized, when there is true hope that is realized, that hope is from God, when it is realized, joy and peace are the sap supernatural outcomes. This world, isn't it true, that all people want joy and peace? Is that not true? So, in order to have joy and peace, we redefine love. Love means accepting everybody in their sins and glorifying God in their sins. At least that's what the world teaches. It is true that all people want joy and peace, but joy and peace come from truthful and merciful hope. And that hope comes directly from God, just like faith comes from God. In other words, joy and peace both stem from faith and are byproducts of believing in God's great promises. Listen, folks, you serve a truthful and merciful God, and He will not lie to you. Your politician will. No matter which party he is in. Our hope cannot rely on that. Our hope even, and I hate to say this, but it's true, our hope cannot also rely on our sidearm. Our complete hope needs to rely on God. That's where true hope, and I'm not saying guns are bad. If you know me, that's not, I would never say that. Our hope comes from God. And joy and peace are byproducts of believing, of faith in God's great promises. And I will tell you that how many of you have lost your joy and lost your peace? 
I guarantee you, it's because you lost sight of who God is and what He is doing. That's the fact. Joy and peace both stem from faith and are byproducts of believing in God's great promises. The great songs of eschatology are focused on His promises to man. Songs over on the other side. Jordan's stormy banks I stand. How many remember that song? I will be with Him in glory. Praise Him from whom all blessings flow. And those blessings will be expounded and exaggerated in our hearts and minds in that millennial kingdom. What a great hope! Faith and hope are functioning here as virtual synonyms. For the God who gives hope does so by increasing faith. And we increase faith by being saturated in the Word. For the God who gives hope does so by increasing faith, which results in joy and peace. Paul emphasizes again that hope is not produced by human beings. That source of such hope is found in what or who? The power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. Now here's the deal. I was just in a class, like I said, and when you're saturated with, I don't know how many hours of that, you, you pick up that, right? You pick up a lot of things I say. One of them is I say, hey, listen, don't preach verse by verse by verse by verse as a running commentary. And I'm like, what? Because each section is a message in and of itself. Okay, I have not swallowed that. I don't know that I, dis I agree with that. But I will tell you what, today, that would have failed me. Because what is written in verse 13, although most people would break it up as a separate section from verse 14 and following, without verse 13, we lose sight of what 14, without 13, 14 and 15 cannot make sense. And we'll go into that right now. How's that sound? The Bible says, And concerning you, my brother, and I find myself, verse 14, also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. For I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because the grace of God was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as priests the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in all things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Iconium or Elixrium, I am fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, but that I would not build so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Again, a, a, a uh, quoting from the Old Testament. 
Now, what is this passage all about? We are not going to get through even close to this passage of Scripture. I have no idea how these guys push eight verses into one and preach a 30-minute sermon. I, I can't do that. And frankly, I won't do that. I think it gyps you of what the text is trying to say. Now, am I going to miss something? Probably. But I'm going to do my dead-level best to explain it in full. Let's get to verse 14. Uh, oh, that's why. Let's try that. Very good. The Bible says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Who is he talking to? Who is he talking to? Who is this written to? The church in Rome. Okay, this makes absolutely no sense. Doesn't it? This church at Rome is the very church that started without apostolic start. I find that quite ironic that the church of Rome started without an apostle. Apostle didn't go to Rome to start the church. We are not aware of that anywhere in Scripture. The only thing we can find is that there were Romans at Pentecost. They heard the preaching of Peter. They got saved. They went back to Rome and started a church. That's the best argument I can find. So no apostle that we know of went there. But here's the deal. I myself am convinced. So when they were at the church up there, let me ask you, without apostolic start, where were they getting their doctrine and their truths? Okay. Old Testament, Yes. Maybe, is it possible there was a, some of the Gospels there? I don't know. But at least the Old Testament was there. And here's what happened. What do you think happened? If most of your, if most of your theology is taken from the Old Testament, and that's all you have to start and build a church, what is it going to look like? How many understand this? Well, first of all, it's in the synagogues. That gives you an idea of what it looks like. They met in the synagogues. And frankly, Paul, what did he do? Every town he went to, what's the first place he went to? Synagogues. Why? Because that's where the people of God were. He would preach to the Jews first. That's why he went to the synagogue. And then also to the Greeks. Well, the problem is you don't have an apostle up there helping them understand what the mystery of the Old Testament that wasn't revealed there is the church. They have this church now, and, and it's, it's, it's blow-up time. These Gentiles are hearing messages from the apostles that are not coinciding with what the Jewish people are trying to hold on to their traditions are trying to say, i.e., the Judaizers. You have to be circumcised. Well, I'm not going to be circumcised. Are you nuts? I'm 50 years old. I am not going to be circumcised to identify with Christ. Right? 
And theologically, are you to be? No. So they had these fights. And listen, did these people love the Lord and love the Word? Absolutely they loved the Lord and loved the Word. But they came at it from two totally different positions, if you will, traditions that they world. And what do you think took place? They butted heads. We find in history that they butted heads so bad that literally there were killings in the parking lot. Okay, there wasn't a parking lot, but you understand. They got so mad about their theology and that they weren't following it, they killed each other, according to Josephus and other historians during that time. That's what that church was. They killed each other in a fashion. It got so bad that the emperor threw them out of Jerusalem. The emperor made an edict, every Jew is out of here, get out of here. And it is said, it is understood in, by historians that over, some people think, a million Jews left the city by edict. Now, this is the church that Paul is looking at and saying, you are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. That's crazy, is it not? Let me ask you this. Is Paul saying that all these believers in these churches were full of goodness, full of knowledge, and able to admonish each other? Literally. No, because they certainly weren't acting good when they killed their brother. And they certainly weren't full of knowledge when they killed their brother. Thou shalt not and to, about admonishing none another, well, that's where the problems came up. Their admonishing involved a knife or fists. But somehow, he, he, he stated this. Paul has directly admonished the church in Rome regarding their problem with loving one another, the Jews and the Gentiles, because they are of Christ. And they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We just read that. And they will embrace the sovereignty of God and love and serve one another. That's what they are to do. He is emphatic. He is persistent. He is persuasive. He is passionate with his admonition. At the end of the letter, and that is where we're at, he now will be sympathetic and understanding. But also reminding them that they have been that that they have been given by God all that is needed for joy and peace. Without 13, how do we get to 14? Pretty tough. They were full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. Is this true? Did the Roman church express in their lives that they were full of goodness and knowledge? If literally true, why has Paul written his theological magnus opus directly to them? The church is in Rome is where the Jews hated the Gentiles and the Gentiles hated the Jews. Blood straight in the streets like I talked about. This letter was to admonish them to, would you grow up? Grow up! Grow up. 
This letter was written to admonish them to grow up, leave peace, live peaceably with all men, serve one another, love one another. Jews accept Gentiles, Gentiles accept Jews, like God promised in the Old Testament in Old Testament texts. Gentiles, don't be arrogant in your faith, for your faith is God initiated and God sustained. Stop it already. Remember, Paul wrote the first 11 chapters on what we call theology. The first 11 chapters tells us who God is, what He has done, who we are before and after Christ, how righteousness is obtained, and how it's not obtained. The first 11 are saturated with deep theological truths. From chapter 12, Paul then says, based on the theology presented to you in chapters 1 through 11, this is what must be a practical result. Love God, love others by serving others. It's not about you, it's about them. Scripture alone, Christ alone, God alone, through the Spirit alone. Now, when Paul writes this, he says they are full of goodness and full of all knowledge. To any historian, those of you who understand the nonsense that caused the writing, these two statements, at least at bare minimum, make us scratch our heads. Does it not? It certainly could look like Paul saying, yeah, I know you were thrown out of the country because of fighting with each other, even to the point of killing each other over theology, but you are full of goodness and knowledge and therefore able to be admonish one another. What in the world? Was Paul using flattery? Was it hyperbole? Was it literally accurate? First and foremost, the text cannot be inaccurate. How many heard that? The text of Scripture cannot be inaccurate. So it's not the text that has the issue, it's our brains that have the issue. Not understanding what he's trying to say. The Bible is 100% infallible, totally trustworthy. So there are no mistakes in it. These are the very words of God. Paul certainly cannot be saying that the Romans are perfectly good and know everything exhaustively. There are many commentators' arguments of what he's trying to say. And what he's trying to, what, how is he trying to think through the community as a whole? Paul, some of them say this, possibly Paul in Acts 1.8 says that the whole world knew of their, uh, of, of, the, of their fiat state, that their faith is being proclaimed throughout all the world. So the Jews were thrown out of the country because some of them were bad, but the majority of them had great faith. Well, that's a stretch, and we can't find that. Some say it's simply courtesy. How many understand that? That Paul's saying, oh, you're really good. You have the knowledge. You can image-monage each other. Now let's step back so I can hit you with a hammer. How many understand? He's not doing that either. Let's be frank. You're not going to sugarcoat the fact that half the church was thrown out of the country because the fighting got so bad and they killed one another. If Paul did that out of courtesy, he's a liar. So that can't be true either. 
it is an interesting tidbit, and I mentioned this before, but this church of Rome was not started, as far as we know, by an apostle. In essence, biblically, we're not told of any apostolic foundation in starting the church in Rome. Unless you include the Romans at Pentecost, hearing the preaching of Peter, this is the only tie to the foundation at all. So why is this so interesting? Well, the Roman Catholic Church, or the church at Rome, heralds apostolic secession, apostolic foundation, and frankly, their church wasn't one. And to be honest, it was probably the only one that wasn't, that we are aware of. It's kind of interesting. The very church at Rome was not founded nor controlled by apostles at all. I think that's interesting. But regardless, what is Paul saying? Is it possible that what Paul is saying is answered in the next verse? Imagine that. Let's go to the next verse. The Bible says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to what? Remind you again. Because of the grace that was given to me from God. This is huge. Is it possible that Paul wrote emphatically, directly, and passionately to remind them of what they may have forgotten? In essence, he wrote for the purpose of reminding them of truths that they already knew. This should blow our minds. How many would agree and say Romans is the magnus opus of Paul? It is the height of his theology. That is the main book of theology. How many agree with that? It is. Paul is saying here, I'm, this is just a reminder. A reminder? If this is a reminder, could you imagine what they have been told? How many see that as interesting and wow, that, that's unbelievable. Not only Paul, but others write also to encourage to remember things like this. This, this in essence, he wrote, the purpose of, he wrote Romans for the purpose of reminding them of the truths that they already knew. And we can find that in 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy and Titus. Peter and Jude, of, of these authors doing the exact same thing. Why? Because we're a forgetful people. Why in the world do we... <coughs> Why in the world do we have the Lord's Supper regularly to remind us? That's one of the reasons. To remind us well, Titus reminded, Peter reminded, Jude reminded, and here Paul is reminding. And Paul's reminding with this magnus opus. It's just huge. How many understand magnus opus, how I'm using it? Maybe um, You could call it this. How many understand if I would say the PhD dissertation is the greatest work that any theologian has done? Everything went into that, right? That's what's going on here. From what we can tell, it's all there. It's huge. What Paul emphasizes is that 
his reminders are rooted in God's revealed authority. Specifically, men like himself, called by God and commissioned as apostle, were giving out these truths. We find that in multiple passages of Scripture dealing with Paul. He said the same thing in many of his letters to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Thessalonians, to the Romans here in Colossae, in the Corinth, all over. But let me go back, if you will. We're going to be doing this back and forth now, but I've done it for you up here, so it's all in one, okay? Let's go back to verse 14, because I think it's important. So in verse 13, and unfortunately I have to get this all together so it's helpful to see, because we need to have this whole passage in view. And concerning you, my brethren, I find also my, I am convinced In verse 13, I'm sorry. What is he convinced of? And 14, sorry, 14. I am convinced of what? That you are full of goodness, and he's convinced that they are what? Filled with all knowledge. And as a result, they can admonish each other. How is he convinced? What is Paul convinced of? Is it possible... Paul is saying that he is convinced that they are truly born again. And that they are indwelt by, look at he says in verse 13. He is absolutely convinced that he is addressing believers, Christians. And he's saying, listen, I pray that the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that why? You will abound in what? Hope. How? By the Holy Spirit. We're going to see His name come up again afterwards. Is it possible when He says, I'm going to try if I can get all this down here so you can see it. The power of the Holy Spirit, wrong color. The power of the Holy Spirit. You see that, right? Full of goodness. How else are the believers full of goodness that go around killing people? Is it possible that Paul is saying he is convinced that they're born again and as a result of being born again, as a result of being saved, therefore they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and as a result they are full of goodness positionally. How many understand that? Let me ask you, is a believer, true believer, full of goodness positionally? Yes or no? Absolutely. Do they always look like that? Not a chance. How are they then filled with knowledge? So I think it, we've got to, you've got to have verse 13 to get to 14. How many get that? These two have to go together. Then he says, filled with all knowledge. How are they filled with knowledge? How in the world does someone know that you shouldn't be killing somebody and kill their fellow believer? 
How can they know that? How can they say they have all knowledge? Well, Paul has just written to them his magnus opus, arguably the most theological book in all of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that they got this knowledge from this letter, although they did get a lot of knowledge. According to Paul himself, they had the knowledge beforehand because of this word, remind. You already have this information. I'm just reminding you with this magnus opus. The letter, if the letter of Romans is a reminder, imagine what the other words of knowledge looked like. Here's what I believe is going on. Number one, in verse 14, Paul is addressing the Romans and explaining to them their current state of their position. What is their position? They are in Christ. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they have They are full of goodness. They are saved. They have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, full of goodness. They have been given theological and practical truths through the Old Testament. Some of the apostles' work they might have had. They might have had some parts of the Gospels. I don't know. But at least they had the Old Testament. And they certainly may have had some of the other letters to other other churches that Paul had written. With these truths, they have, they have the means to admonish another, one another in a loving and theologically correct way and reason. I think it's important that we understand Paul uses these particular words that are extremely important. You are filled with all goodness. The Holy Spirit is indwelling you. You have that same goodness, if that's what he's talking about, and I'm convinced it is. But secondly, you're filled with all knowledge. I've heard this over and over again this last class period. There is a plethora of knowledge in this world that the world has never seen, access to knowledge in this world that this world has never seen before. Now, he didn't finish the sentence, but let me finish it for you. That knowledge does not necessarily translate into wisdom. Does that make sense? He doesn't use the term wisdom, and for good reason, he uses the term knowledge. He uses the term knowledge. So in essence, does this make sense? Although they were not putting into practice the plethora of truths and the power of the Spirit, they possessed them all. How many get that? They possessed them all. In other words, they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, say amen. They were given all knowledge. Folks, there has never been a time in history where you have more knowledge of the Scriptures, especially when they had it back then. You have much more than they do. How many praise God for all the knowledge we've been given through His Word? Amen? Well, I'm sure glad we're not like those Romans. 
I mean, how in the world could they do this? They had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They had all the knowledge, but yet they go out and do dumb things like that. Doesn't it sound just like us? To be sure, we have the same indwelling and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And we actually have more special revelation, more Bible than they did. In a sense, we are more accountable than they are. Were. And by the way, that's a very important principle we need to understand. It's called progressive revelation of the Word. In the Old Testament, they are accountable for what they were told. Trust God. He will do what He says. Today, we need to trust God in that He will do what He says, but we also need to, He already did something. <laughs> he sacrificed His Son on the cross. That we must believe and embrace. Amen. In the Old Testament, that had not happened. But because of progressive revelation, we are accountable for more information. Amen? That is the hallmark, by the way, of dispensationalism. How are we doing? How are our relationships with other believers and our neighbors? Are we like them? Where we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Word, yet we live like the world. How many would agree, you know, let's go on. That sounds really good, but that's getting kind of convicting. I hope that truth is impactful. Because that's exactly what is being understood here. Verse 15. Verse 15, I'll, I'm just going to leave this one up so that we can follow along here. But I have written very boldly to you on some points as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. We talked about the reminding briefly, but... Reality is, isn't that ex exactly what all of us need every day? We need constant reminding of the text and the principles of God's Word. We must be reminded who God is and what He is doing. The more we are reminded of these things, the greater use by God we become in our greatest desire to glorify Him and enjoy His works. He said that he wrote very boldly. What does that mean, boldly? Well, I think it means many different things, but let me be, let, let's just be frank. Did Jesus boldly clear out the temple? Was that a bold move? Absolutely. Did Paul boldly confront Peter in his Judaistic thinking in his face? Did Jesus boldly, consistently confront the religious sect of the day. And by the way, I, I, would, I, would, I would draw your attention to that because I think it's very important. He boldly attacked, boldly confronted the religious leaders, whereas he kindly and lovingly confronted the sinners and publicans. How many understand that? That's a big deal. 
And I think it's a practice we need to emulate in our lives. But this boldly thing is pretty cool because I'm going to use somebody that many of you have heard of before, and you're going to be shocked for what he says. But this is what the word means, especially during the time of the writing. I'm going to read from a Jewish historian called Josephus. Does anybody know who Josephus was? Yeah, he was a Jewish historian. Do you understand what he really was? He was in the army of the Jews, captured by Romans, and they made him and be, to become a historian. That's how it actually happened. So he's Roman now, and so in his writings you will see Rome isn't as bad as they might have been. His head literally was on the line. How many understand that? Now, Josephus, because he's Jewish, in tradition and his history, he talks about how the Jews understand these men in the Old Testament. This man was named Nimrod. How many remember Nimrod? I'll read it to you as Josephus states it. He says, now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. In other words, Nimrod coaxed the rabble. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a, here's the word, bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it was through his means that they were happy. But to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his his power, Nimrod's power. He also said that he would revenge on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Did you hear what he just said? I hate God. And I am going to boldly make these statements that you go ahead, God, and you go ahead and try to do this again. I'm going to make a ziggurat high enough to be over top of the waters, and I will win. This is Noah's son. Obviously, this man was bold to a huge fault. Bold enough to put his fist at God. How dare you? Principally speaking, how many of us do the exact same thing? I'm losing my husband or wife. How dare you do that to me, God? It's snowing too much. It's as frivolous as that, right? Folks, God is God. You are not. The idea that Paul, that's just a principle found in these texts that he's just 
nuts over, but you can see his boldness. That's the type, that's the word that is being used with Paul. Except in a good sense, right? He was in their face telling them, guys, you're wrong. Knock it off. Grow up. The idea that Paul was very bold gives us the idea that he was like Nimrod in his attitude of boldness. But the difference is extremely clear. Nimrod's boldness was based on his strength, whereas Paul's was based on the power of the Holy Spirit. How many times, how many times do we rely on our own thinking and our own strength to accomplish what we think God wants and we don't rely on faith and trust in Him? Well, to be honest with you, what does the Bible say? The just shall live by faith. So Nimrod's boldness was, boast, was based on his, his own strength. But Paul's was based on the text that states, because of the grace that was given to me from God. Is it not true that too many times we're like Nimrod and not like Paul? Oh, that our source of strength and foundation of our boldness be founded on our great Father who is the sovereign, omnipotent God that has sent to us the very indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine a greater gift? Can you imagine a greater down payment for yet what's to come? Oh, man. Truly. We have everything, as did the Romans, to admonish one another biblically. Admonish is the duty and the responsibility that every believer has for encouraging and strengthening other believers. Now, what was the special grace of God that Paul tells us he was basing his boldness on? Okay, how could he be so bold? Because he was called to be. And I'm going to, give you, I'm going to give you the bird's eye view of what we're going to deal with next week, okay? Because it's already close. But the bird's eye view is this. God called Paul to minister. How many say, well, yeah, I see that all the time in just about every letter he writes. Paul, called to be an apostle, Right? So yeah, he's got that. He's called to a ministry. Let me tell you this. There is not a one person in here. And whether you're saved or not, there's still not a one person in here. If you're unsaved, you need the Lord. But if you are saved, you have a specific calling. But everybody, by common grace, has been given a responsibility, a vocation that God's going to use for the greater good of all humanity. But let me talk to you as Christians. I can't say that you're saved or unsaved. I can just under, I, I'm going to treat you as your fruits tell me that you are. But I will tell you this. Every single person in this room has been called 
to be a minister. What? How many have ever heard that before? If you were in CE hour, you just heard it. How many have never heard that before? Raise your hand. Never heard that. So by your hands not being raised, it's not because of embarrassment and stupidity on my part, but it's because it's true. You understand that you're a minister of God. I pray that's what you really believe. Each and every person sitting here is a minister of God in the vocation and calling that He has called you to, and He has gifted you to accomplish that calling. Amen? And you have been given, just like Rome, every, the church of Rome, full of goodness and full of truth. That is your well spring of living. But is it? Is it? Obviously, Rome got off track. The church of Rome did. And they got off track even worse as the days go by. By 100 AD, literally, those in Rome detested the Jews so much that they started replacement. I'm, I'm telling you, replacement theology has its root in the first hundred years of the church existence. They hated the Jews that bad by claiming it was the Jews that sent Jesus on the cross. There is nobody that has ever been born apart from Christ that has the blood of Christ on their account negatively. It's sin that put him there. Not an ethnic group or a people's. It was sin, and all the world's sin put him on that cross. But, by the time of 100 AD, here's what was going on. The church of Rome, specifically, you can even look at some of the early church fathers in Rome, they detested the Jewish people. And by 200, 300 AD, it was almost as if it was a separate church. There wasn't even, there is, there's hardly any Jews within the church. How many understand that? They were gone. They were missing. The church as a whole was Gentilic. It actually happened even before that, but for sure by that time. Why? I will tell you why. Because even though they may, as Christians, they were full of goodness and knowledge. Their faith and lack of wisdom made a detour. How many understand that? Some would say, well, the reformers got it right then. They brought it back and they got... No, 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 the reformers, although they were godly men, many of them, they still had this problem of hating the Jews. One of the greatest reformers was Martin Luther. Do you know what he had stamped, engraved into his brick wall? It wasn't by accident. It had a purposely to be put there. A pig depicting the Jews. 
was engraved on the building, church building itself. I think one of the greatest faults that we have, and I'm struggling through this, and how to articulate it well. But we somehow do the same thing to those that are in particular sins. As if they're worse sins than what I commit. How many understand that? The Christians are to be people of what we need to be, of what we are for. Not known for what we hate. How many get it? I don't know if you know this, but Islam has overtaken Christianity as the largest growing religious organization in the world. What's even worse is the no religions, as of 2022 poll, says it is the second largest religion in the world. The nuns, they call them. N-O-N-E-S. Why? Why is that happening? How in the world can that happen if the Christians are full of goodness and the Christians are full of knowledge? How many want to know an answer to that? Two of you? I really believe is because we've become ingrown and because we are not ministering in the world. We're trying to bring the world to us to minister. How many understand that? Why do we have VBS? Now, we don't necessarily have that, but why do churches have VBS? To bring the world in. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to teach the world Christ, amen? But you spend 40% of your time working with secular worldly people 40 percent of your life it's the greatest percentage of time in your life is spent in your work how are you integrating your faith with wisdom to your co-workers does that make sense these guys had all the tools, but they lacked wisdom. They didn't apply them. And they went off in their flesh. What's the difference between Rome back then and the church today? I would argue very little. We're not killing each other. I guess that's a plus. But how are we different? Jesus Christ Himself. Do you remember Him going door to door? Going boat to boat? Saying, hey, come into the synagogue. We got something for you. No, He went where the people were and used the goodness and the knowledge to share with them who God is. 
he ministered and served others. Not just their souls, but their body and soul. You can see it all the way through the Gospels. Matter of fact, if you don't, never mind, I don't even want to go there. (laughs) How can you not? How are we ministering? Are we using the goodness that the Holy Spirit brings and indwells you and the knowledge that we have in the text to serve others as we're serving God? Because that's exactly what this is talking about. It certainly wasn't talking about their practical living because it was terrible. And it's because they didn't have the wisdom to rely on the faith, the fullness of God, and to use the knowledge that they have to glorify their God. Amen? Awesome, awesome passage. I'm telling you, I have not been this excited about a passage in a long time. And I am just pumped to look at it and like, oh, wow. Wow. Isn't God awesome? He can slap us in the face by focusing on the text and simply allowing Him to be God. I pray that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the Word impacts our lives today today and tomorrow. So Monday is just as important as Sunday, amen? That through this next week, practical Christian living will be realized in your life by reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit and the text of the Word. And that those two things drive you as you minister and implement your faith in your work life. Because I tell you what, there's a lot of stress going on in every one of your lives. I know there is. All of you have different vocations that God has called you, and it's stressful dealing with the world. How do we deal with that? Rely on the goodness of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the text. Become a people of wisdom is the way I guess you could put it succinctly. I pray that that is the case this week. As we go out ministering to others as we serve God in our jobs that we are given. Mr. Gaiman, can you close the word of prayer, please? Please stand and I'll dismiss us in prayer. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for uh, just our accessibility to your word and that you have provided the preacher here to open it to us. I pray we would not go away now and forget what we've heard, but apply it for your glory. Amen.